Welcome to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Today's podcast is titled His Thoughts, Glenn Lowry. Glenn Lowry was raised on the south side of Chicago in a predominantly black neighborhood. Originally recorded in 1987, he discusses his opposition to affirmative action, his concern about many actions by black community leaders, and the appreciation of black achievement in the face of discrimination. Listen now, and don't forget to subscribe to get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Hello, my name is Glenn Lowry. Bob Chittister has asked me to say a few words about myself and some of my ideas. Let me begin by talking a little bit about my background. I was born in Chicago, Illinois, some 38 years ago. Grew up on the south side of that city in a predominantly black neighborhood. Went to public schools through high school. Married early and started a family. Finished college in 1972 at Northwestern University, where I studied mathematics, and then came to MIT to pursue a PhD in economics. That got me started in my current occupation as a professor teaching economics and politics at a number of universities. I've been teaching at Harvard University since 1982 and at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government since 1984. Thanks, Glenn. Tell us about some role models that made an impression on you as you were growing up. Well, there were a number of people I think were quite important. My father was one. Although my mother and father were divorced when I was young, I saw quite a bit of my father as a kid, and he was always the kind of person who was working hard to improve himself. In fact, the year I graduated high school, he finished his law studies. He impressed upon me with his example just how much one could accomplish in life if one were to persistently apply oneself. Ever since those early years, I've been struggling hard and not always with success to emulate his example. I had teachers who also influenced me. In junior college, a teacher of calculus saw some talent in the mathematical area and urged me to try to develop that by uh, transferring to Northwestern University. It had never occurred to me that I might study at Northwestern until this man pointed out that possibility. Um, in doing so, he had an important effect on my life. Anyone else? Well, there were surely others. Uh, an uncle who I saw quite a bit of as a youngster, um, who was a barber by training, not much of a formal education, a natural businessman, a hustler of a sort. Um, what about heroes? Any heroes? Yes, I suppose I had my share. Martin Luther King was a hero in my youth. Um, there were sports figures that I much admired. Ernie Banks, growing up in Chicago, for example, in the late 1950s and early 1960s, was um, a figure that a lot of us looked up to. Um, when, did you, when did you, quote, discover your first intellectual hero? That's a good question. I would have, it would have been after high school, I think. Um, although the school that I went to was good enough by public school standards in those days, um, I don't think I really became excited about ideas until later in life. My first intellectual hero, I suppose, would have been a mathematician. There was a teacher of mine at Northwestern, a man named Friedman, uh, who had written a textbook that we studied in this graduate course. And it was my introduction to the elegance and power 
of uh, abstract mathematics. Friedman was quite a gifted uh, pedagogue, and uh, he um, helped to make concrete and understandable some of the theorems that uh, seemed incomprehensible to me at the time. Um, it was fairly late in life before I had intellectual heroes, I'm sorry. How about events? We all, usually most of us can identify an event that was a real critical turning point. The strike of 1970. Uh, this was uh, back during the Vietnam War days and um, big student demonstrations after the invasion of Cambodia by U.S. forces had become public. I was studying at a junior college in Chicago at the time. And our institution was um, not as sophisticated as uh, some of the others where a lot of student uh, unrest was going on. Basically working class kids, many of whom had jobs that they went to and then came to school um, and when they could spare the time. Um, but I was quite struck by what I saw as some of the frivolousness of student demonstration going on at the university and how uh, many of the uh, kids who were struggling hardest supporting families and trying to go to school at the same time uh, ended up having a relatively little sympathy for uh, uh, the actions that the radicals were engaged in. And uh, I don't know, there was a lot of pressure for us in those days to uh, hew to the party line and not to raise questions. It was my first experience with a kind of censorship, a kind of little small tyranny that sometimes goes on in political movements. Um, I came to understand that uh, by, be, by raising the question of whether or not my time was best spent by studying in view of the fact that I did have to go to a job when I left that campus and I did have other ambitions, it was better spent by studying than by being out on the line. By even daring to raise that question, I found myself already being isolated and um, coming under attack. It taught me a little bit something about the, uh, the dynamics of political debate and of censorship. Have things changed? Is, is there a better environment for the, uh, the young student who has to work and uh, study hard? And is there more acceptance of, of that approach? Oh, I don't know. That, I, I think probably, yes, uh, there is more acceptance nowadays among college-age kids of that sort of mundane, traditional approach than there would have been back in the years of the height of the counterculture. But I think some things haven't changed that much. And the thing I was emphasizing in that example was how the demand for conformity of opinion can tyrannize individuals and, and limit political discussion. It did so among anti-war people back in those days. There was only one right position. And it continues to do so, I think, today in a number of movements. Um, protests against South African apartheid, for example, seem to have some of that feature of you're either with us or you're immoral. You either support sanctions or you favor apartheid. Um, uh, if you raise questions about whether or not there's communist influence in the ANC, it must be that you're insufficiently attentive to the concerns of racial justice. Um, I think this difficulty of people who zealously pursue their moral goals being intolerant of dissent and willing to question the, the ethical bona fides of those who are willing to dissent uh, is still very much with us. Are you comfortable with change? 
in the abstract? Yes, I suppose as much as anyone. Isn't our society fairly dominated by change? Well, I'm not sure I know exactly what you mean, Bob. Um, Don't we have to confront change rather regularly? Yeah, we do. That is one of the features of the modern world, it seems to me. I mean, there's change in technology. There's demographic change. Attitudes and values are constantly being examined and re-examined. Um, and our nation is itself the product of dramatic changes in the lives of millions of people, being a nation of immigrants, being essentially um, founded and, and, and uh, constructed out of... Uh, um, a uh, barren and undeveloped continent. So yeah, change is ever with us, but there's change and there's change. I, mean, I don't know that I'm uh, in a rush to change our um, fundamental moral presuppositions that have permitted uh, us to live together relatively peaceably as a society or have permitted uh, um, Western culture and, and, and civilization to develop such as it has. Um, I, it's the essence of conservatism, I suppose, to be suspicious of change, or at least change of a certain sort. Um, I guess maybe one of the things I was digging at is this. Technological change seems to constantly speed up. The, the, the lead time between one state of the art and the next seems to shorten and shorten. Yeah. And, it, and it seems to me some would argue that that is leading us to the point where we must change some of our institutions. Yeah, the old that's an argument. The old institutions don't hold out. How do you feel about that? I think that's truism. I think that's, uh, um, I, I can think of a number of areas in which that uh, seems to be quite an accurate statement. In the biotechnology area, it's quite clear that our legal and moral um, framework and institutions are being pressured by the increasing capacities to do things that weren't technically feasible before and that raised profound value questions that we don't quite know how to cope with. Um, it's also the case in the area of nuclear technology and weaponry. The argument could be made that the development of technical capacity has gone on at a much more rapid rate than have the development of the social and political institutions that would restrain the use of that capacity and ensure that it be productively employed. Um, so yeah, one feature of modern life, uh, especially its technical side, is a rapid increase in, the, in our know-how about how to uh, undertake various things. And it's the case that um, social institutions simply don't, uh, don't develop at the same rate. Indeed, it could be argued that uh, there's no reason to presume linear progress uh, in terms of uh, institutional capacity as one might plausibly presume with respect to a technical capacity. In an area very close to you, uh, which is the question of discrimination, racial bias, has there been real change in your view? That's a, that's a hot subject in a way. People want to know. There's some people who believe there has been, some who say that, that we haven't made. Well, I think there's no doubt that there's been profound change. Um, Thirty years ago, more or less, um, a black man was raped and murdered and uh, lynched in the South. Um, there was a big Emmett Till. There was a big uproar. There was an effort to get the Congress to pass an anti-lynching law. That effort failed. Um, 
Within a decade, the United States Congress was willing not only to pass an anti-lynching law, but to pass quite sweeping legislation that uh, uh, made uh, many practices that were deeply ingrained in American society illegal. And that ushered in a period of uh, significant change in terms of de jure um, restrictions on, uh, on discrimination. I think attitudes have changed too. Um, we, uh, when we examine poll data, see a much larger proportion of the population assenting to um, fairly minimal statements about racial tolerance, like would it be all right if someone of a different race lived next door to me? Do I, would I object to my daughter marrying someone of a different race? When people are asked those questions 30 years ago, they give uh, much less encouraging um, answers to it than, uh, than they do today. There are still problems. Uh, with race in the society, but I think there's little doubt that there has been uh, significant change in the last generation. One aspect of your background and, and all minorities is that, is that you really have two agendas that you always have to be working on. One is your professional life and the other is, is the society and how it reacts to you as a member of this special group. Uh, let's go back to the professional side a minute. And when you were in college, what, what kind of things did you study? Economics in general, but any specific areas? Well, when I was in college, I was a mathematics major. And I, I studied a lot of uh, math courses. In fact, I was taking uh, mostly graduate uh, level courses in my, uh, by my senior year, analysis, probability theory, um, algebra. Um, I studied philosophy in college. Um, and economics. Economics was a minor. Um, German language and literature. Um, and uh, I took the relevant required courses in the other areas, you know, but uh, mainly concentrated in mathematics and economics. Your interests have changed since then. You're now, you're now more interested in policy matters, isn't that? I'm more interested in policy. I'm more interested in politics. Um, Why? My interests have become more applied. I, I think that's um, an interesting question. I, I'm not sure I know the answer. Um, I know that my early interest in technical subjects was uh, quite long-standing, going back to my, my grade school days. Uh, I found it fun and something I was good at and naturally attracted to. Um, but during college, um, and because of all the turmoil that was going on in the larger society, I began to question whether I wanted to spend my life in an ivory tower engaged in esoteric explorations that very few people would understand and that didn't address themselves directly to the uh, critical problems that the society faced. So I became dissatisfied with the idea of being a professional mathematician and um, uh, discovered economics. Economics is uh, very convenient in this regard because it allows you to if you're inclined, uh, do mathematics, um, and yet you can still maintain the credible pretense that you're engaging real social questions if you label the variables properly. Um, so I would do mathematics and label the variables properly. Um, after teaching economic theory, mathematical economics for a few years, by virtue of being black and being one of the relatively few blacks on uh, the f campuses that I was on, I found myself getting asked 
to speak or get involved in one way or another with a variety of different kinds of research that were generally not the direct mathematical theorizing that I um, was doing in my own work. Um, a lot of these questions would involve issues of um, labor markets, of uh, the training of unemployed youth, of uh, social welfare policy, that sort of thing, what to do about urban renewal and so on. Um, and I would be approached because I had a certain amount of expertise in the discipline of economics and, as I say, because I'd be among uh, the relatively few numbers of blacks in uh, faculty positions in these communities. Um, those kinds of experiences opened up for me a, a range of questions that I had not very much been um, interested in in my uh, school days, but that I came to see were really quite important. Um, then, about five years ago, um, I was um, invited to come to Harvard, and part of my responsibilities were to teach in an Afro-American studies program, an interdisciplinary program involving a lot of very able undergraduates who were majors of sociology or political science or psychology, that is, who were not economists. And in the course of interacting with these young people, of advising them on their work, you know, teaching them general survey courses and the rest, um, my own intellectual interest began to broaden. I began reading uh, a lot of philosophy and history, a fair amount of literature. Um, I began looking at the issues that I had been concerned about for a number of years. Um, but had always examined from a purely technical point of view, I began looking at those issues in a much broader, if you will, humanistic context. Um, and uh, that induced me to shift the way in which I was spending my time, my research time, and to uh, uh, put a lot more emphasis in my writing and thinking on what might be called softer questions, questions for which there was no definitive answer, which one couldn't approach in a purely deductive manner. Uh, questions that were heavy with interpretation, that had a, uh, an important um, ethical or moral component to them. Um, I began thinking differently about social problems and seeing that I, I had something to say about them beyond what my technical training would permit me to say. So I've been saying it. The history of blacks in the United States, in fact, I just misstated it, the history of blacks in America colonial as well as the United States. Obviously there must be of interest to you. Yes. As part of this. <coughs> Have you given any particular consideration, since this happens to be the constitutional bicentennial, <coughs> to, the, to the question of the founders and the founding fathers as it relates to black history? Well, yes, in a certain kind of way I have. I, I wrote an essay recently for the public interest that raised some of these questions. Um, uh, an essay that asked about the changing place of blacks in the American constitutional order. And one starts, when one thinks about the American constitutional tradition, with the, the founding fathers and their effort to uh, um, forge uh, a constitutional basis for our nation. Um, and it's difficult to avoid the observation that there was a profound irony uh, involved in the fathers uh, dealing with the race question. Um, we know that the ideology of the, um, of the revolution was one which affirmed the inviolability of the individual, one which uh, 
propounded the notion that uh, individual liberty and the rights of the person should take precedence over the interests of the state or the sovereign. Uh, and yet we had uh, in that period uh, the institution of American slavery well established. And more than that, the explicit trading uh, going on between factions in the effort to put the Constitution together uh, on the question of slavery because of the fact that some states had a very strong interest in its maintenance, an interest which prevailed over the ideological um, uh, inconsistency uh, between the institution of slavery on the one hand and the ideals of the American Republic on the other. So the founders were, the founders' um, generation uh, faced a certain kind of problem uh, which they solved as best they could, although in retrospect uh, one can regret that they were not able to face up to the moral problem implicit in slavery uh, in a more effective way. If you strip away, if, if we could go back and change history and remove the slavery question from the founding, do we then, in that context, have a a historic action of, of great moment with, with, without the qualifications we now have to? I think we have a historic uh, action of great moment and uh, in, that's going on on the North American continent in the late 18th century um, that it seems to me quite clearly continues to affect world history in an important way. And I think on the whole one has to see what went on there and the, and the uh, developments from it as extremely positive from the point of view of mankind. My qualifications about slavery uh, notwithstanding, um, I don't know that there was a solution available to the founders if they were to create the nation that they wanted, uh, uh, given the, uh, the very strong interest that the southern uh, colonies had in uh, the maintenance of slavery. Um, and I think we should note that the document that the founders did produce was of such resilience and, and such virtue that it was able to accommodate not immediately and not without some trauma, but ultimately able to accommodate, uh, and more than accommodate, to shape and guide uh, the enfranchisement and inclusion of this, uh, of this excluded uh, group of Americans. So uh, they were but men, after all. Um, I think the work they did was of uh, enormous importance and, and um, virtue. What would you want others to most know about or appreciate regarding the history of blacks within the context of, of, of our nation and its evolution? Oh, that's a difficult question. I think uh, one, one thing that is very important is to understand how the experience, the historical experience of second-class citizenship has worked to influence the contemporary um, shaping of black demands and uh, the contemporary posture of black politicians and spokesmen. Right? 
I think we continue to have a very serious problem around racial issues in the country, as uh, anyone who reads the newspaper knows. Um, and I think there's enough responsibility to go around. I don't believe one can simply characterize these difficulties as the result of a, a racist white America that is simply in, insufficiently attentive to the, to the concerns of blacks. And the thing that I'm stressing here, the important thing that I would want an observer to understand, is how it is that um, some of the difficulties that come from the black side of that equation um, have uh, come into existence and, and come to be so deeply entrenched in the community because of the historical uh, process that uh, has produced the circumstance that we're in right now. I mean, for example, um, you take the um, uh, issue of uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan. <coughs> Uh, the black Muslim leader who has been um, prominent in the recent years because of his uh, statements that uh, many people uh, believe are um, anti-Semitic. Um, there's a serious problem with the kinds of things that Mr. Farrakhan has been saying, but I think an even more serious problem with the relative silence that his statements have been greeted with by responsible leaders in the black community. And uh, we all know what uh, has gone on here. Uh, Minister Farrakhan giving very inflammatory speeches to large audiences of blacks in cities around the country. Jewish leaders coming forward and urging black politicians to dissociate themselves from those statements. And black politicians being very reluctant to do so, giving the appearance that they either implicitly endorse Minister Farrakhan's statements or at the very least find them insufficiently offensive to warrant any response on their part. Now, that is a kind of circumstance likely to engender significant ill will between communities of Americans. And yet I think I understand why those politicians have been reluctant to say what it is that they believe. And I think that has come about because blacks have been embattled politically for so long that group solidarity has come to take on an importance independently of any rational benefit that could be derived from it. One desires very much to avoid being perceived as uh, keeping company with those who are enemies of the group. And one is therefore willing to defend or be silent about the behavior of group members, even when that behavior is absolutely outrageous. And indeed, one sometimes feels entitled to that silence in the face of that outrageous behavior by virtue of the silences of the years past when blacks were the victims of outrageous behavior and so on. Now, I don't. I can't um, defend all of this as being noble, but I think I can understand it as uh, a natural consequence of certain historical events. And I think a sensitivity to the way in which this history has hemmed in, hemmed in and, and, and distorted the political rhetoric of blacks uh, would be a very desirable thing um, as we go ahead because we're going to be facing a lot of very tough problems uh, for years to come on this uh, general question. Those in the white community, the majority in the United States, what should they be aware of in terms of the black contribution during our history to these very fundamental questions that the Constitution attempted to address? Well, I, I won't say that, uh, that educated majority Americans aren't aware 
uh, of that, although I suspect perhaps not as aware as they might be of, what do I mean? I mean, um, I mean that uh, the, the black struggle for equality has been about two things, it seems to me. One has been directly about the interest of the group of persons in question and their effort to expand their wherewithal, their economic well-being, their political influence to achieve equal citizenship. But the other has been about the meaning of the American community itself. And so a figure like Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist life, is a, is a, it's a life about the achievements of that particular man and people like him. But it's also a life that uh, says powerful things about, uh, about our republic and about uh, the meaning of our ideals. Frederick Douglass, born a slave, self-educated in the face of laws that made it uh, illegal to uh, teach him how to read, nevertheless becomes a uh, brilliant uh, expositor of the abolitionist creed, a powerful rhetorician, uh, and a symbolic leader known throughout the world of the effort to, uh, to bring an end to slavery. Um, and similarly, I mean, I could name any other person. Martin Luther King would be uh, an obvious uh, figure now uh, many, many years after uh, Douglass. Uh, engaged in the same struggle um, and contributing to the definition of American community in a like fashion. King's movement is about the uh, uh, empowerment of uh, uh, blacks in the South in the late 20th century, but in mid 20th century, but it's also about uh, the capacity of American political institutions to give meaningful voice to the ideals that are implicit in our civic creed. Um, so what I'm saying is that an appreciation among Americans generally of the contribution that blacks struggling for their freedom have made to the um, overall political tradition of our nation uh, would be something I think uh, be quite valuable. I want to switch directions and move to economics. Uh, and and I can't help but comment in the process of the move that that you're really involved in two extremely complex areas. The one we were just discussing, blacks in our society, and then of course economics, both of which are very very difficult areas. Um, what do you think is the most misunderstood aspect of economics? Um. I'm tempted to say supply and demand. Uh, in fact, I'll stick with that answer. <laughs> the simplest, some of the simplest economic ideas, I think, are the most misunderstood. People seem not to believe that demand curves slope downward, for example, by which I mean if something becomes more expensive, individuals' willingness to purchase it will decline. Um, you see this argument all the time. People believe that you can raise wages without it having any effect on the demand for labor. That if you're unhappy with the living standard of people who are working for low wages, all you have to do is legislate a higher wage and all will be well. When in fact, if you legislate the higher wage, employers' willingness to use workers for the kinds of jobs that they were paying them before will go down. The demand curve for labor slopes down. And yet, all the political argument that goes on under the guise of, if only we had higher minimum wage laws, we wouldn't have so much poverty, uh, misses that point. Similarly, people who think that the way to get low-cost housing is to put statutory control, uh, constraints on the level of rents don't understand the idea that the supply curve slopes upward. 
which is to say that if you restrain the amount that people are able to charge for a product, you will also restrain their willingness to supply that product to the market. And so again, you hear the argument, and you hear it over and over and over again, and you hear it in successive generations, that the problem of the lack of availability of low-cost housing can be solved by simply mandating that people not charge more than a given amount for their rents. And yet we know, and we have seen it happen time and again in city after city, that when that happens, rather than the availability of low-cost housing expanding, exactly the opposite takes place. Because landlords no longer are willing to invest in the production of new housing, and because it becomes economically uh, remunerative to allow uh, housing to decay and not to keep it up since the returns to it have been constrained by the statute. So a failure to appreciate the fact that statutory regulation of prices doesn't produce the desired outcome in all instances because people will respond either by withholding product from the market or restricting their demand for the product in question in the face of that statutory restraint. Uh, I would offer to you is um, perhaps the uh, most often misunderstood idea in economics. What do economists mean by the zero-sum theory? Oh, uh, this is usually in um, connection with the idea of, um, of uh, economic growth and income redistribution. And the idea is that uh, the uh, income distribution within the society is basically a zero-sum game. A zero-sum circumstance is one in which any gain to one party must be offset by an equivalent loss to some other party. And in the context of income distribution, what that means is that if the poor are to be better off, it must come at the expense of the, of the middle class and of the wealthy. If anyone in the society is to gain, it must come only because someone else in the society loses. And it leads to a focus on redistributive mechanisms as opposed to growth-oriented mechanisms as the solution to the problem. That is, the problem is perceived as one of, if only we could take the, the piece of the pie that's too big for this party and slice off a little bit and give it to the other, we'd solve the problem. Instead of thinking that, well, perhaps it's possible for all parties to gain here by implementing uh, policies that will allow the pie to be bigger and uh, will in that way help the people who are at the bottom of the heap. Is it a widely held theory? I think so. Um, I think it's sometimes correct. I mean, I think there are situations that are essentially zero-sum, although I don't think they are uh, broadly characteristic of modern capitalist economies. But I mean, I think we can find situations. But yes, it's a widely held theory. Uh, there, there seems to be some tendency in human psychology to want to see the impoverishment of some as an event that occurs because there are others who are not impoverished. Um, a tendency to want to blame the well-off for the condition of the badly off and therefore to perceive the only path for correcting the position of the badly off as doing so at the expense of the better off. Is that specific observation one you agree with or not? No, it's not one I agree with for two reasons. One is political and the other is economic. The political reason I, I disagree with that observation is that it is divisive and it it uh, suggests that the only way that progress can be made is if someone is defeated. People are often not willing to go without a struggle to their defeat. And if those on behalf of whom the argument is being made are generally weak, and they are, the very fact of structuring the argument in that way tends to undermine their political position because it makes the defeat of the more powerful the only mechanism by which they can achieve their ends. 
But the other reason, and equally important to me, is, uh, is economic. And that is that um, my reading of the history of industrial development in the modern world is that in those places where um, people have been relatively free to pursue their own enrichment through the market, through private investment, through profit-seeking activity, it's been precisely in those cases that economic growth has been greatest and that the position of the poor in the society has improved most rapidly. That is, as an empirical matter, I'm asserting that when economic growth is strong, the inclusion of the margin, economically marginal at the bottom of the society takes place at the most rapid rate. And yet, for economic growth to be strong requires that there be present incentives for people to engage in the activities that produce economic growth. A zero-sum approach to the problem of poverty often is implemented by uh, uh, actions that dull those incentives. For example, very high marginal tax rates on the income of uh, high-income persons, which are used to finance transfers to low-income persons. And yet, such policies, by dulling the incentives of people to produce, by slowing the rate of growth of the economy, can actually work to slow the rate of progress of uh, those who are, uh, who are worst off. Now, this should not be understood as a general argument against the welfare state or against any kind of taxation, but rather as a specific argument that points out that um, uh, pursuing redistribution at the expense of growth well may redound to the detriment of the people on behalf of whom the redistribution was undertaken in the first place. Ethnic and racial. Uh, two terms that tend to be mixed all together. Are they the same? And how do they interrelate? Well, ethnic uh, is a designation uh, for a group of people who share a common cultural background. Racial is a designation for a group of people who share a common genetic uh, background, if I may just put that crudely. And those two things are obviously different. Um, I mean, I could talk concretely about the fact that uh, black Americans of West Indian descent and of indigenous American uh, descent are racially the same, although one might uh, find it very uh, uh, useful to make ethnic distinctions between them. Um, blacks on the African continent are racially similar but constitute a great many different ethnic groups, uh, speaking many different languages, having many different customs, and so on. So, in, and in the U.S., we have the problem of the many immigrant ethnic groups. Right. And, and the comparisons that have inevitably been drawn between their experience and the, and the black racial one. Right. Makes a very difficult situation. Do you have any, do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, I do. Um, I think that the uh, comparison can be useful under some circumstances, but I think it must be, it must be done very carefully because I think that the, the race factor in American history um, has a, had an enormous power and influence beyond uh, that which uh, uh, black ethnicity, if, if I could make that distinction between blacks as an ethnic group and the, the racial uh, distinction. I have. I, I would point to one uh, area quite uh, that, that illustrates that quite clearly, 
and that is um, um, intermarriage. Intermarriage among European ethnic groups of varying backgrounds, Catholic and Protestant, has been fairly high. One consults, for example, the 1970 census, I think you'll find, and, and you ask the question of people, um, how do you designate yourself in terms of a country of origin? Are you of Polish extraction, Italian extraction, or whatever? And then you ask for people who've answered that question, um, would you say that your spouse is of the same or of a different group? You find something on the order of a half of most white ethnics answering that their spouse is of a different, uh, of a different extraction. Um, whereas if you were to look at interracial marriage statistics, you would see that uh, uh, you have very low rates of uh, interracial marriage, notwithstanding the fact that you've had very high rates of inter-ethnic marriage. So now if I come to assess the possibilities for social mobility within the American structure of these two different groups, I have to take into account the fact that the barriers between the newcomers who were of European extraction, although perhaps speaking a different language and having a different social class, the social barriers between them and the uh, host population, while great, considerable, are evidently nevertheless not nearly as great as the social barriers that existed between the descendants of African slaves in our republic and the rest of the population. And the intermarriage or the residential segregation um, statistics, and I talk now not from 1940 or 1890, but from 1970 or 1980, uh, show a level of separation that continues to bear out the fact that those phenomena have operated very differently in our social history. So therefore there's a difference really between what, 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 what one might call racial discrimination and ethnic discrimination. Well, in effect, if not in motivation. Yeah, I think there's a difference, a difference in the extent and the consequences of those two different kinds of discrimination, yes. Is bigotry a prevalent human trait? Is this something we're cursed with? It would seem so, yes. I'm, I've yet to discover a people among whom uh, the trait cannot be found. In other words, blacks are bigoted toward others? Sure, some blacks are. We have a very serious problem to deal with, obviously. <laughs> We've got a very tough problem, and the problem is getting tougher because we've got a segment of the black population in the big city ghettos of this country whose condition appears to be worsening and who are being left behind um, and uh, whose continued presence and misery constitutes an ongoing indictment. And in view of, our, of the history of the country, the fact that these people are disproportionately non-white um, hangs over our heads, notwithstanding the fact that we have made enormous progress in redressing the wrongs. Uh, and, and, and that circumstance constitutes a, a kind of tinderbox for a demagoguery, a natural platform for people who don't appreciate the virtues and flexibility of our system to continue to attack it. Unless we do something about that festering problem, I think we're going to have race issues uh, of importance and, and uh, very difficult issues in this country for some time. Much of that problem has a relationship to economics in a sense, it seems. Uh, that It's a question of differences of income, differences of resources. Let me ask you a somewhat th uh, a theoretical question. What is wealth? What is this thing we're all struggling for? 
Well, conventionally, um, I suppose one would answer that wealth is the sum total of one's holdings, of one's financial uh, assets, the value of the, uh, of the securities, the amount of money in the bank, uh, what the shares would sell for, and so on. Um, that's the conventional uh, notion. You can sum it up and get a number. Uh, my own view is that one ought to think about wealth uh, in, a, in a much broader context than that because the capacity to be able to earn income and acquire financial assets may consist of something much more than simply financial assets or ownership, for example. Um, coming from a tradition which leaves a young person equipped to compete effectively in the business world because you grow up around people who do it all the time, you get it in your blood almost. I mean, that's a phrase that harks back to a, a, a much simpler uh, uh, biological conception of social outcomes, one that I don't embrace. But it, it's meaningful too because of the fact that there were many traits that one could only acquire by blood association with people who already had them. Uh, if I wanted to be a diamond trader, for example, in the world market, it would be a good thing that I'd be born into a certain sect of Jewish people because it happened that there, for many generations, uh, uh, activities in this area had left them with a great deal of knowledge and uh, connections and so forth and so on. All I'm trying to say is that being born into certain kinds of situations and having in one's formative years certain kinds of experiences could be reviewed as a kind of wealth as well. A community of persons who are stripped of their assets but who remain, the who remain with the capacity to educate their young, to motivate themselves, to keep a sense of their own history, to keep their eyes straight ahead on the ball and therefore to recoup and rebuild is a wealthy group of people notwithstanding the fact that they may have been reduced to punery by the confiscation. And uh, conversely, a group of people who have a windfall bestowed upon them but who are unable to convert that windfall for whatever reasons into uh, a long-term economic viability um, are not going to be wealthy irrespective of that windfall. One thinks here, for example, and I certainly mean to offend no one, of um, a, a, an American Indian tribe that might own on its reservation lands that are rich in resources but that might, because of its desire to stay close to its traditional way of life, choose to use those resources in a way that would not promote the ongoing economic productivity of the members of the tribe. They would then not be as wealthy as their land holdings might seem to suggest because their cultural inclination would not permit the reproduction and continued expansion of that wealth within the context of the American uh, economy. That, of course, would not necessarily reflect poorly upon them as persons, but it would have the implications that I've suggested for their longer-term economic well-being. Which uh, suggests, in a sense, that there's an opportunity cost there associated with that choice that they've made. But I don't want to get into that at this point. I want to uh, ask, you mentioned markets earlier about diamond markets. What do economists mean by markets? We hear this all the time. We have a free market and a free market is good, but what are markets? What is this? Well, we know the ordinary language meaning of the word market, a place where trading goes on and we go to the market to buy our goods or whatever. Um, the economist's conception of market is a straightforward extrapolation of that idea. 
Um, if I want to buy green groceries on an early Saturday morning, going down to the market uh, uh, is a natural place, natural thing to do. If I want to purchase um, um, a piece of equipment for my factory, uh, there probably isn't going to be a physical marketplace of an analogous sort that I can go. But there nevertheless will exist a set of people who manufacture and sell that equipment. There will exist uh, a network of communication among persons for the purposes of buying and selling that equipment. There may be a second-hand market in such equipment. You see how I'm using the word market now, by which I mean the collection of persons who are engaged in the buying and selling uh, of a particular uh, good or service. Um, so the market uh, for an economist is a kind of metaphorical extension of this commonplace notion of uh, where one goes to buy and sell. Uh, namely, it's the um, uh, collection of people who are engaged in the buying and selling of, uh, of a particular good. There are those who argue that markets are colorblind. You know, what do they mean by that? And, wh and what, are, what, in you, your view, might be the limitations of that statement? Well, they mean simply that if people are in business to make money, then their profit motive will override whatever prejudicial uh, uh, feelings that they may have. And in the end, the market, which is this place where the people who want to make money are buying and selling, will produce an outcome that is uh, not going to be influenced by the color of the skin of the people who are involved. They mean, for example, that if blacks can play baseball very well, and if baseball owners are in the business to make money, then in the fullness of time, the pressures of profit will induce those owners to employ blacks in the professional baseball leagues, notwithstanding the fact that those owners may hate the idea of blacks and whites playing the game together. That example both, I think, illustrates the definition of this idea that markets are colorblind, but also, given our history, shows the limitations of the idea. Since, after all, money was to be made by employing blacks in baseball long before Branch Rickey decided that Jackie Robinson in 1947 should be breaking into the majors. If markets were entirely and perfectly colorblind, how could we account for the fact that it took until 1947 before somebody figured out that they could make profit by employing uh, uh, skillful blacks? Um, I think markets are substantially colorblind, but I think that there can come into existence social consensuses of one sort or another that preclude the total um, elimination of racial differences that would, uh, one would expect to come about in a purely um, a market economy. I think markets always operate within social context, and I think there are constraints. I mean, for example, medieval Europe. Uh, religious belief in the, uh, in the inappropriateness of charging interest leads to this concept that uh, uh, one can't loan money if one is going to expect a return greater than just the capital back from the lending. That obviously interferes with the smooth operation of the capital market. You get people into the banking business, many of whom come from religious backgrounds which aren't encumbered by any such prohibition on interest. People, for example, who are Jewish the market ends up prevailing nevertheless uh, over the social custom. Uh, but it takes time, and it could take a long time. I think something like that uh, is, uh, is, is accurate in a description of uh, the interaction between race and the market in America. The pressures are always there to eliminate any racial difference because a profit opportunity is available. 
but those pressures may have to operate against social conventions that have been built up and are deeply ingrained and may take time, sometimes a very long time, to fully do their work. Is the United States still a place of opportunity? Without question, you need only go to Ellis Island and ask the enormous flow of people struggling to get into the country about that. What would you advise uh, today's college students? I mean, you probably do advise them, but uh, what do you have to say to them about uh, how they should prepare themselves to take advantage of these opportunities? Well, you know, there's the straightforward, let's work hard, buckle down, uh, this is the land of opportunity. Uh, you, you know, your, your horizons are virtually unlimited if you prepare. Uh, this period in your life is probably the last time you're ever going to have the leisure to intensively study things that interest you, uh, and that will make you a more productive citizen and uh, economically uh, uh, more successful. So you better make use of this precious opportunity, uh, that sort of thing. But then the student will say, yeah, but there's also still a lot of racism out there, a lot of bigotry. Uh, that's true. If it's a black student, in particular a minority student, uh, right. one's likely to hear that. I usually don't try to argue with students about the extent of bigotry that's out there, although I often find they overstate, and at least in my judgment, overstate it, especially if one has a little bit of historical perspective. I usually try to remind the students of how things used to be. I try to point out to them often that the very fact that they and I are having the conversation that we're having in my office at Harvard University as they matriculate at the same place is indicative of how far things have come. And, uh, you know, it's a glass half empty or half full kind of thing. If we focus on racism, on the glass being half empty, uh, we may as well give up. And yet, because there are so much opportunities, I, I want to suggest to them that uh, it's more constructive, more productive to focus on what it is that one can actually get done with the opportunities that exist. And I think those are quite substantial. Uh, that doesn't mean that one ignores racism, but it, I think does mean that one doesn't become paralyzed by it, doesn't allow its existence, which I don't deny, to become the central fact in one's life. Uh, because I think that way uh, lies a certain kind of self-defeating cycle. Um, one sees racism behind every bush, under every rock, uh, one has a built-in excuse for one's own personal failures or lack of effort. One is defeated almost before one begins in life. Um, and it seems to me the opportunities in this society are too great uh, to see that happening to uh, young minority uh, kids. Do economic differences also dominate our behavior? I mean, is that a factor in this, this equation? Um, Does that tend to heighten it, the fact that, do you know, we don't see many black chief executive officers? I think that heightens it. I mean, I think, along with, a, with some other writers, that uh, much of the problem uh, with racial inequality today is a class-based problem, that uh, we've got a, a, a large number of blacks who are trapped in lower class status and who remain there substantially because of economic reasons, not primarily because of their race. But history, the history of racial exclusion, the history of the formation of a certain kind of political culture among blacks, makes it impossible to separate those two things. You will hear well-to-do blacks, middle-class blacks, well-educated blacks, complaining and, and, and articulating their concerns in a language that would be entirely fitting for um, you know, marginal working-class uh, whites in a, in, a, uh, in a white country. Um, who perceive their circumstances as one of uh, class and capacity 
even though in objective terms their class status is, uh, is, is fairly high. Um, so there's an interaction between race and, and, and economic uh, matters that uh, has been influenced by our history. Want more episodes like this? Don't forget to subscribe and get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast.